the landlord at the house that I rented was a tailor. I used to cut the grass at the house to reduce my rent. And he he owed me 75 bucks because I cut the grass three times. And he said, hey, um, do you want the cash or would you be interested in trading for a tuxedo? So I have, I still have this tux today. It's like one of those, luckily, that has the adjustable waistbands. Oh, yeah. um, it's a great trade. Gift that oh keeps on giving. So it was a phenomenal trade. I wore it that night that I met Elise, and then I wore it for uh, as a host on uh, a roast, and I've worn it. I probably worn it like ten times. So it was a solid, solid trade. Hello, and welcome, everyone. I am Jory Calkins, the founder and CEO of Enduring Companies and the host of Built to Outlast, a podcast and community for business builders by business builders. We explore the journeys and companies of business builders in America with a focus on traditional small to mid-sized business niches and the strategies which enable them to endure and flourish. If you are building a business now or aspire to build one in the future, this is for you. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources to support your journey, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is, or if you want to buy or build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. Welcome, everyone, for our show today. We're speaking with Dan O'Reilly, who is a friend and the founder and president of DPO & Co., which is a both consulting and investing firm focused on small to mid-sized, more traditional businesses here in the U.S. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, you have a fascinating background, uh, as a lot of people on this show show have. And I'd love to, you know, whenever you're comfortable starting, I don't know if that's zero or three months or three years or whenever it is, I'd love to um, have you just share, you know, who are you? Where are you from? Start from that spot. Sure. Yeah. I'm originally from City of Big Shoulders, uh, Midwest boy, grew up in Chicago. My uh, really large family. So I'm the youngest of four kids. My brother, Sean, is 10 years older than me. And then, you know, our family was large, but also my extended family was large. I grew up, my dad was the third of 10 kids. So I grew up getting to go to a birthday party almost every weekend for a cousin um, and basically just having a lot of family around. Uh, A lot of folks who, until much later in life, never really left Chicago or Illinois that much. So originally from Chicago and, uh, you know, had a chance to break out of that bubble. I, I flew on an airplane once when I was 12 and then not again until I was 17 or 18. <laughs> um, now you're on airplanes all the time. Yeah. I'm on a flight at least once a month these days. Uh, it used to be, you know, 36 weeks a year I would be on an airplane. Well, you're you're averaging out. <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. I uh so I kind of, you know, after having that somewhat insulated childhood in Chicago area, I definitely broke out of my my shell. I I worked uh, after I studied or graduated high school, I worked at a motorcycle repair shop in Costa Rica 
my friend Yade's uh, family, they owned a small shop and it was a really neat experience. And then uh, I'm sure we'll wind up talking a little bit about where I went afterwards, but uh, got a really neat opportunity to live in Budapest when I worked for Morgan Stanley. I think I went to 28 countries while I was living in Budapest and business school was another cool opportunity to travel a lot. And I think I've all told, I think I've been to 42, 43 countries. And that sort of is the opposite of what I'm trying to do for my kids. It's the opposite of insulated. They're getting to live here in Puerto Rico, where, you know, everybody, their best friends are from all over the world. And, you know, it's a neat cultural experience for them. Yeah, I'm super excited to get to that, to all the different places you've been, because I feel like, you know, there's a lot of different cultures and experiences you have that have gone into who you are before before we get to that which I'm excited to get to can you talk a little bit about you know growing up in Chicago you've got a big fam you know you got a big family they're all in the area and so you know there's probably a good kind of community feeling walk me from whatever age that is 5 10 to what do you feel like you took from that experience and and what was the next kind of chapter after that well i think knowing the value of family was really strong. I think I bring that family culture into DPO and co. We, t- we make a point of meeting spouses or partners of our, our, our teammates. I've met the children of my, my teammates multiple times as well. So that, that certainly reigned true. But I think initially it certainly created a bit of a chip on my shoulders. You know, my, my dad was. A Chicago public school teacher. He taught math at Nicholas Sen High School. And we had two aunts and uncles who were Chicago police officers. We had three that spent time either uh, as clergy folks in the Catholic Church, uh, as one still a priest, and two at one point were working as, as nuns and still working within the Chicago Archdiocese. So I never really had a family member that did anything very similar to me. So that kind of had gave me bliss initially. And then, you know, as as I got an opportunity to travel a little bit and see the world in in New York, uh, at Morgan Stanley, I, I think I saw a little bit of how other people grew up and that dichotomy of that. And uh, I think it wound up giving me an appropriate hunger and and I say like a healthy chip on my shoulder for for achieving some of what we're we're doing today at DPO and Co. Tell me a little bit more about that. Can you talk through that? Did you just get on a plane or a you know train and head to New York, or like what happened between when you were twelve with a big family in Chicago that you know were sounded like were great public servants and involved in a number of different things and landed at Morgan Stanley? You know, because I'm sure there were some formative ex- experiences in between there as well. Yeah, sure. I I think, you know, like everybody else, even though we didn't come from a huge, huge means, we still had a lot of fun. We got to play a lot of baseball and pal around with a lot of kids when I was younger. But I think, you know, when I turned 12, I started caddying. That was certainly, I always wanted to to be the best caddy. So starting as a, as a B-jock, I started caddying at a country club. And I remember as a 13-year-old literally sobbing to myself because the country club called me, or I called the country club the next year to say, when can I come out to play to caddy? And they said they had cut their caddy program. 
it was devastating for me because my my brother and both of my sisters got this Chick Evans Caddy Scholarship, which paid for full tuition, room and board. And um, I thought that meant I wasn't going to be able to to get the same scholarship. So I wound up switching country clubs and it actually worked out really well for me as a 13 year old to have some experience and started a new new club. I spent all of my summers, you know, not having a a professional role model within my family. I wound up getting a lot of professional uh, role models out on the golf course. I I tell people now that the best thing about caddying when I was 12 was that I went home with money in my pocket most days, not every day. <laughs> but then the the best thing about caddying when I was 18 was that it paid for my full tuition room and board scholarship. I was Danny Noonan from the movie Caddyshack for anybody listening that that knows that one. So I know you mentioned that to me in passing in, in past conversations we had and I thought you were joking but it actually is it is the same scholarship right like it is the scholarship that that was based the movie was based off of is that right? Yeah so so Bill Murray wrote that movie about his and his family's experience caddying at the Indian Hill Club in Winnetka, Illinois, which is coincidentally where I had my final round interview. So, you know, the it's all this scholarships, a lot about learning and experience and character. And one of the things that they feel like builds character, and I agree with is they, your final round interview, they stand you up in front of 100 white haired folks. And it's a basically a press conference. And you get to answer questions from the crowd. And so my incidentally, wow. my how old were you for this? I was 17. And the, the soul crushing thing right before my interview, I can still remember 20 years later is the woman who went right before me. And she was a, uh, she was in the house with me. She her talent. I thought it was almost going to be like a America's Got Talent or a, some kind of <laughs> show like that, because she was a phenomenal theater major and she wanted to go to University of Illinois to, to study theater and I could hear her belting out a tune that somebody had must have asked her like what's your favorite song from your current show and I was like oh my gosh what are they going to ask me and thank god they didn't but the you yeah. must have gotten a good question what was the be- what was like the did you have an equivalent of that question for you you know like being in the moment, it was a little bit higher pressure for me than this conversation. So I, I almost, I literally like don't remember practically any questions that were asked of me because I was nervous, you know, talking to, in front of yeah. all of these these people, and I wasn't really prepared for that at that age. Um, which is why it was such a character building moment. I think it's a one of the cooler things that that program does. Obviously, the mission is pretty great. So, yeah, I think that caddying in general, I wound up caddying for uh, seven years at two different clubs and then uh, had a few members that were really great role models who one of which like would pick me up on Mondays and drive me to different golf courses around Illinois to caddy for him in these amateur competitive events. So I had a lot of a lot of visibility at that time of like, hey, this is something to aspire towards. And uh, Clint on my team would, he once laughed, he said, your, your dad would probably have his mind blown if you, if he knew that you were, if you told him that you were going to join a second, not just a first, but a second country club. 
um, <laughs> when I when I joined my club down here in Puerto Rico two years ago. So it, it's definitely come full circle, and it's a probably like in terms of philanthropy, it's one of the things I feel most strongly about. It certainly took a, a lot, my family in particular, having four of us go through the, the caddy program probably is among the biggest benefactors of that scholarship. And we try to all give back in our respective ways. And so that was really, that was probably the most formative and it's kind of taking it to the next level. We wind up, there's uh, four Evan scholars on our team now. We've had- is that. At DPO. Yeah, on the DPO and co-team. Wow. There's four Evan Scholars, and we tried to recruit directly from that program's uh, on-campus on recruiting. So we generally think that if you're the type of person that works hard at 13 or 14 or 15 and puts yourself through, sc- through school and you had the same kind of healthy chip on your shoulder and work ethic that I felt like I had, that you're generally pretty well suited for our team. It's a similar heuristic that, you know, top business schools give people on their resume is just, you know, somebody very thoughtful has already decided that you are worth investing 50, 60, $150,000 on uh, for a full tuition room or scholarship. Yeah. It sounds like a, a great, program, certainly one that you all, you know, has been very impactful for you. And I didn't, I didn't realize all three, is it three siblings? So all four of you. Yeah, my brother. And so I bucked the trend a little bit. My brother and two sisters both uh, earned the scholarship to Marquette. And I thought about going there as well. Uh, But I bucked the trend and went to University of Illinois, where my cousin, my older cousin, who we so there were two cousins growing up in that large family, one a year older than me and one a year younger than me. And we called each other the three amigos, or my family still calls us the three amigos. And all three of us went to University of Illinois and did something a little bit different than uh, my brother and sisters. Well, it's probably one of maybe the first or, or maybe not the first of multiple times you've bucked the trend. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited for to, to surface a few of those uh, over, you know, our conversation. But what came next? So, I, so you were at, you're going to college and then you landed in, is it, what well, did you land in New York? And then walk me through, you know, bucking the trend or otherwise and, and heading to New York yeah. versus where some other folks went. Yeah, it was good timing. Um, so I, You might not even know this, but uh, so I was originally supposed to graduate in summer of 2008, which uh, obviously there was a great recession that was happening. But I wound up graduating a year early in 2007 from University of Illinois and basically just always signed up for 18 credits every semester. And my thought process was, hey, I'll, I'll drop my least favorite class, but then the concept of sunk cost never really sunk, <laughs> sunk in for me. And I just wound up sticking through and taking 17 or 18 credits every semester. And then with like a few AP credits, and I actually got a ton of credit for Spanish from the University of Illinois. Uh, I was able to pretty easily graduate in three years. And so at the time, I got some really good advice from uh, education director at Western Golf Association, which is the sponsor of that Chick Evans Caddy Scholarship. So I was 
torn between getting, since I had the scholarship, I was torn to between just using the money and going for a fourth year and getting a master's in finance or economics from University of Illinois or going out and getting a job. I didn't have the very best internship because on paper, I looked like a sophomore. And back then, now we hire sophomores and we hope that we can get them back for junior year and we hope we can get them back for full time. But back then, it wasn't very common to have meaningful sophomore year internships. And on paper, I looked like a sophomore. So I talked to this education director and I asked, "What? Well, I'm torn, what would you do? And he said, I would go get three to five years of business experience and then don't get a master's in economics from University of Illinois, go try to get an MBA from a top five or 10 business school after you've gotten some really good experience. So I I was recruiting all over for both full-time jobs and summer internships at that time with just trying to keep my options open. And with the thought process, if I get a great internship and don't get a great full-time job, I I will uh, just come back and maybe actually have some fun at, at college. Or if I get a great job, I'll, I'll go work. And I wound up uh, getting this offer. You know, I was t- looking at jobs in, I remember I almost took a job with Kimberly Clark working as uh, in their finance rotational program because it was cool. I would my job would have been to work three days a week in Mexico and two days a week in the U.S. crossing the border at a maquiladora, and so like that had a lot of really neat appeal to me. But it seemed like a pretty much a slam dunk when I got an offer from At Carney to, or excuse me, from Morgan Stanley to live in New York. It was something totally different. I have my birthday is December 12th. I share a birthday with uh, Frank Sinatra. And um, (laughs) my brother was really kind of the best mentor I had at the time. And he, we talked about if we can make it there, we can make it anywhere sort of thing. So I didn't, I didn't know anybody, literally zero people who lived in New York at the time. But now having done it, you know, I, I signed an offer letter as a 20 year old with Morgan Stanley. And having done it, I kind of recommend everybody live in New York for at least a year, which I think the average tenure for people moving from outside of New York to New York is like 13 months. So I think a lot of people do that. But I, I, it was a really neat cultural experience and eye-opening experience, both for me and everybody who came to visit. So tell me more about that. What, you know, what did you expect? How did that line up with the experience you had? What were eye-opening things, what were things that, you know, you had mentioned before, instilled or reinstilled hunger and motivation for you? Tell us a little bit more about that, you know, kind of that transition period for you. So I knew New York was going to be expensive, and I had no idea how much more expensive it was going to be than Chicago. I signed a lease in my first, you know, my first apartment, I wanted to be able to walk to work. And I signed a lease for this is in 2007 for 14.50 a month and it was a studio with home office and i was in the home office i was in a 78 square foot home office that was big enough for a queen size bed and a dresser and that was it uh, i used the dresser as a standing <laughs> desk and we shared the bathroom we shared the kitchen and then the the studio part was a person that i had met on craigslist 
who was paying like $300 a month more than I was. But so that experience was certainly um, different, right? No privacy. I think I we had a curtain from Ikea that we ran across uh, the ceiling. <laughs> but, um, with, a, with, a, with a guy you met on that. Craigslist. Yeah, with a guy I met on Craigslist, actually. And so the guy I met on Craigslist, four months into it, he moved. But I think two months into us living together, we realized we had the same birthday, literally the same. He was one year older than me, but the literally the same birthday. And then, yeah, his was an example of somebody who moved from beautiful California. And it was New York can be a lonely place, even though there's you know, 8 million people there and 20 million people on a given day. It, it many, many times felt pretty lonely there. Yeah. So you're in, was it Midtown? Were you at 1585 Broadway or, or, or nearby? You're in Midtown somewhere. No, I eventually, so I lived at 10 Hanover Square was my first apartment. And I walked to the building, the Morgan Stanley building right near the Staten Island Ferry. Um, Got it. I forget what one New York Plaza, I think, is what it was. Okay. Um, because I lived in that seventy-eight square foot apart or studio home office, I didn't spend a whole lot of time there. I had it as a goal. My brother, again, my brother was like my one role model. He said, like, always just say yes, which was kind of my attitude with caddying too. Like somebody would say, "Oh, it's." Thursday and it's a group of four unaccompanied guests. Do you want to have their their loop? And I would say yes, because you always get the loop then. And people will always invite you out if you say yes. So Monday night football, anybody want to go out? Yes, was the absolutely the answer. <laughs> um so I said yes a lot and I wound up making a commitment to try to meet a new person in a meaningful way every week. Wow. Which became really expensive uh, in New York. You know, if you're going out on a regular basis, my initial salary did not cover my lifestyle. I had built a lot of something that is kind of unthinkable for, thank God for the Evans Scholarship, but I had saved a lot of money. I took out student loans every year and invested that money and paid off all of the tuition or all of the expenses and things before, you know, I think that you didn't accrue interest until six months after graduation. So I wound up paying back all of my loans, plus had a lot of market gains. It was a good time to be investing from 2004 to 2006. Thank God I didn't. Time that one, right? Yeah. If I had done that three years later uh, or two years later, I might've been in trouble, but um, it was one of the cool arbitrage situations of free money from the U.S. government for three years. Um, <laughs> but uh, my dad had a home equity line of credit. And I said, oh, I got cash burning a hole in my pocket. Let me pay down some of your home equity line of credit and you can just pay me a little bit less interest than it costs you for the house. And I thought, I think it was like 50 grand that I had lent, lent him. And I was like, oh, this will I'll probably never need this money back. And within about a year, within about a year, I needed to, to say, all right, uh, draw on that home equity line of credit. I'm, I'm spending way more than I'm making here. How did you meet people? What, you know, any, any great relationships that came out of that, you know, meeting someone new once a week? Tell me more about that. 
there were the strange people that you just meet <laughs> meet out at a bar on a Thursday or Tuesday, really. Um, there were those people, but I really, I think we had 43 people in my analyst class at Morgan Stanley. And I just started there, right? Like they, they had friends. Um, most of them would came from East Coast. So they, they would have friends. And I, so I leveraged them a lot. Like I still am very cl- close with this group I call the Fox, the Fox. Borough crew, where my one friend Kevin Daniels introduced me to this much larger group, and we wound up hanging out all the time. Sounds like a serious crew. Oh, they they were the (laughs) they were the crew that you uh, wouldn't have minded. Some like nobody ever would pick a bar fight with this group. It was a it was a fun group (laughs) to be part of because you could walk around with a little bit of swagger after having a couple drinks in in Manhattan. So it's good to have those that that crew, especially for someone like myself who's not going to be winning any bar fights anytime soon. Yeah, well, I shouldn't have been uh, attempting. I de- definitely didn't want to show up to work at Morgan Stanley with a black eye. That not a good look for not not good come promotion time. No, that's for sure. So you, you're at Morgan Stanley. You're in New York. You're living the fast life a little bit, but you know, at a you're trying to be as uh, thrifty as you can with it as, as is possible in New York. What came next or what, you know, you mentioned that as kind of motivational for you too. What, you know, how was that motivational and what was the next step that that led you to in your journey? Well, there was a ton of learning for me at Morgan Stanley, um, but I was living through the financial crisis and our, so we were with on the equity derivatives desk and our desk was making Volatility was good for our business, so it wasn't a bad time to be there, except for this whole credit default swap debacle where, where uh, you know, our fixed income desk at Morgan Stanley didn't do very well. So I wound up never making as much money as I thought I was going to make uh, at Morgan Stanley. And I said, man, I'm working pretty hard for not a lot of money, and I need to find some way to get ahead financially. And uh, also, I wanted... I. I kind of realized at that time that I wanted to work at companies that made stuff. So there was a time when I joined, I I think I signed my offer letter and Morgan Stanley's stock price was in the high 70s. And there was a time when, you know, Bear Stearns and and Lehman Brothers were both going belly up. And I said, well, Morgan's, everybody said Morgan Stanley's next. And there's our stock price dropped to 670. I think Citigroup might have actually been the next one that would have struggled. But I said, man, I want to work at a company that makes stuff that isn't really at this where like just a couple bad bets could have really sunk it because they weren't doing anything in my mind that created a ton of tangible value for society. Used to be where you know they would help a farmer decide on how much crop to, to plant that year and you know offload some of that risk from the farmer and that's still great and ag folks are still using those tools but do we really need to make a squeeze on um credit default swaps and subprime debt like that that was far from actually creating value in society so at that time, I uh, was looking for new opportunities. I applied to business school because I wanted—I knew I wanted to make a career change. And then an opportunity opened up with them to move to Budapest. 
And so I, I had been traveling back and forth. So, uh, we had hired a couple folks. With, with them me. being Mor- at Morgan Stanley? Yeah, still within Morgan Stanley in a different group. So I wound up moving there for a year and supporting not just New York anymore, but London and Hong Kong as well. And we were one kind of positive coming out of the Great Recession was there was all this extra work that needed to get done from a compliance perspective. And it was not the sexiest work, but there was there needed to be standardization and things. So I ch- I changed roles to go live in Budapest, and it was a great experience. And it was exactly what I needed for, to get ahead financially. Like I, I was living in the Royal Corinthian Hotel as a 26 year old and managing a, a really large office and had a corner office looking over the Danube River and really would have liked to Not have gone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was, uh, I was saving a lot of money making US dollars and- um, It's a great spot to yeah. wait out 2008 through, you know, whenever. Well, this was a little bit later. So I I, I had waited it out 2008 and- didn't like the outcome of waiting out. So, <laughs> so I wanted to try something different at the bank. This, so this was 2011 that I spent most of the year there. Got it. And so things were starting to shape up a little bit better. And I was able to save up a lot of money living there and spending, you know, all of my money was spent on travel while I was there and barely anything was spent on, on food or drinks. I drank a lot of Palinka <laughs> <laughs> there um, because I, my, my attitude of say yes, still, still applied while I was living there. So people would say, Hey, do you want to go to check? Do you want to go to Prague this weekend? And I would say, yes. Or do you want to go to, uh, to Amsterdam this weekend? And I would say, yes. Um, so I did a lot of travel while I was there. And um, one of the cool learnings from that experience was concept of a super global team. So we were working with people in, in Hong Kong. So Budapest was sort of ideal because we our team could spend sort of their morning working with the Hong Kong team and have all day working with the team in London. And then they could have their afternoon working with the team in New York. And I said, man, this is a life hack. This is a, somebody who's using time zones <laughs> to their advantage rather than a disadvantage. Like I still... Don't get me started, but the, I have this viewpoint that we shouldn't have time zones. Um, We're going to need to double but, click on this. <laughs> but uh, so we, you know, Budapest was great because it was super strategically located for us. And I got very comfortable with a global team, which we implemented here at DPO and Co. Now our, our it's our biggest differentiator being global from the beginning. So. After Budapest, you know, I was... Before we go into Budapest, let's pause and talk about time zones for one sec. Tell me more about that. What What is... I mean, you have a way more, it sounds like, informed uh, view than I do and, and way stronger view than I do as well. Why, why does no time zones make sense? Well, most people will tell you it doesn't. Um, or but sorry, I think not, it, not make sense. Why do the time zones... Yeah, because they're artificial. You know, in Chicago in the summer or in the wintertime, it gets dark at three in the afternoon. So the whole concept of, hey, this is helpful for me. It's a nice step that the U.S. is deciding to not change clocks after March when we spring forward. But 
I, I have this concept of global time and you just should just be, there's only one time you don't need to book a flight and say, what time is it? Or I think there, the numbers are probably in the tens of billions of dollars of lost efficiency globally. I'm like, wait, did you mean 10 Eastern or 10 Central? Uh, how <laughs> I've, many me- I've messed that up a lot. Yeah. And, and really to what benefit? Like it's, if you just said it's, the normal business hours are one through 24 or there's zero through 24 on a clock. You just got to be respectful of what normal business time is in other parts of the globe, but then you don't need to do this mental gymnastics of wait, which time zone do you mean? And is that a time zone that changes their clock or doesn't? So you have this recurring meeting that, you know, for nine months a year works and then the U.S. changes their clock and all of a sudden a bunch of people miss the meeting because in here in Puerto Rico or where our team is in Indonesia, they missed the meeting because they <laughs> their clocks didn't change. It sounds like you've oh. gotten burned by this a few times. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started with India. You know, the, the half the half hour time zone, they're 10 and a half hours ahead. You know, China, China gets by, I think, OK, with one time zone for for basically a country the exact same size as the U.S. I think I probably agree with you. I just don't know if it's a battle I would fight. There's, I mean, there's definitely battles I fight over this one, but it's, you know, it's it's a good <laughs> one discussed with a Medaya or some kind of alcoholic beverage in hand. Fair enough. We'll, we'll circle back to that. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, so you're, you're at Morgan Stanley in, in Budapest, and then you're thinking about business school. Am I remembering that right? Or you're yeah, thinking about so it? I, I had applied to, to business school before I left New York. And once I got in, I actually wrote, I was having a, a phenomenal time. And I wrote the, all the business schools that I was applying to that, hey, if there's an opportunity or when I got in, if there's an opportunity to delay matriculation, I'm getting some really good life experience that will hopefully translate well into the classroom. And uh, they all said, take the spot or it's gone. <laughs> or it's gone. Um, <laughs> so I, I would have loved another year there in, in Budapest. Um, but I, I think in retrospect, it worked out great. Put me on a path uh, at Yale. I ultimately wound up going to Yale and New Haven and um, wound up meeting my bride there, which was obviously very formative there you go. was i yeah i caught her i caught her on the one night that she actually was out uh not studying or working at a hospital you you were the beneficiary of her goal to meet maybe someone new once a week or something like that she uh she might have had the goal to meet somebody once a semester uh <laughs> <laughs> she, she she took school a lot more seriously than i did i having been a finance major and taking school very, very seriously my first time around, I still took it quite seriously as an MBA student, but it was very easy for me. You know, like they're go- you're going through Finance 101 and uh, I wound up tutoring several classes and getting really good grades in the classes that I was already equipped for. And then I wound up leaning into a lot more classes that were newish. To me, so like ne- the negotiations class was by far my my favorite. PVC was a really really fun and informative and class for me. Uh, so I wound up school was relatively easy, but for Elise, 
my wife, uh, we met at the Annie Goodrich Nursing School Ball on February 1st, 2014. Like, literally. Sounds like like you remember (laughs) that date well. Pretty well. Yeah, there were a couple, um, but we were, I forget exactly what we were doing before, but one of the, one of my classmates said, hey, who wants to go to a $25 open bar? And I raised my (laughs) hand. And then uh, this was in, in front of, I can't remember the gathering, but there were probably 150 ELSOM students there. And he's like, just so you know, the open bar is being hosted by the nursing school. And then a lot more men uh, <laughs> became interested. And uh, so I was, I said, you had me at open bar, but we wound up uh, being a little bit silly that night. It was, a, I said, a nursing school ball. What should I wear? And um, I had the, <laughs> a funny story. Well, the, per, the landlord at the house that I rented was a tailor. I used to cut the grass at the house to reduce my rent. And he he owed me 75 bucks because I cut the grass three times. And he said, Hey, um, would you rather, do you want the cash or would you be interested in trading for a tuxedo? So I have, I still have this tux today. It's like one of those, luckily that has the adjustable waistbands. Um, It's a great trade. Gift that keeps on giving. It was a phenomenal trade. I wore it that night that I met Elise, and then I wore it for uh, as a host on uh, a roast, and I've worn it. I've probably worn it like ten times. So it was a solid, solid trade. But so I wound up meeting her there, and um, that was, I mean, the cool. I the that second like final semester at Yale was one of the coolest things to remember. at Yale, they everybody. So when I was looking at business schools, Chicago has two great ones. But people, what I didn't like about Booth was like everybody took the the bus to schools. What they said, but it was actually the the Metra train because everybody lived kind of downtown. Some people lived on the south side near near school. But for me, like almost everybody lived in this East Rock neighborhood, and it was just so fun to bop around and. Um, there was also East Rock was a big kind of like for me being from Illinois, it was a mountain to climb. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun to get exercise and be out at, at East Rock Park. And um, it was a really, really fun place. And there were a lot of people who were in a similar situation as me, you know, just trying to meet a lot of people and get the most from their their MBA experience. Just saying yes. They Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So you're you're going through this experience. You've met Elise. You're in the is it your last semester? And what did you say next to you? yes? What was what's the next what was the next leg of the journey? So I met Elise on that February first, and on February twenty seventh, I had already bought an around the world ticket. So I flew from New York to Tokyo, and I was doing an exchange program at Hitsubashi University. And I was, so I was a week in Tokyo, a week and a half in Australia, then New Zealand, LA, Chicago, back to New York. And I said, man, if I miss, if I miss Elise during this month long vacation, then I know it's real. And uh, I did, I wound up doing uh, WhatsApp chatting with her at 
very strange times, which was okay. (laughs) Which gets gets back to your just hatred of time zones. Yeah. Like I should have just said like, wait, is it, I have to do the mental math because today I'm in Tokyo and next week I'm in Australia in a different time zone. So yeah, I think uh, I would have just said, I'll meet you at global time too. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure, you know, she would have been glad to wake up in the middle of her night just to, you know, see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But so I got back and the next thing I said yes to was, she, you know, she she's a nurse practitioner and they do this similar matching process that doctors go through with like which hospital they're going to work at. And she said, I got matched at Olivia Hospital in Chicago and we'd been dating for like two months. And, <laughs> and what I had said yes to was, yeah, come live with me. I don't have a place yet, but come live with me. And it was a great bet for her and a great bet for me obviously four kids later and she's been the best partner your business partners you have life partners and and she's a little bit of both you know she's she supports our business from behind the scenes in a lot of different ways but it was getting meeting her was um like just catapulted my success you know first i couldn't have done it without her and actually like we'll wind up getting there but being married allowed me to take that leap and start a business. I mean, it sounds like a amazing and pretty foundational partnership of many that have come out of that. So can you maybe give a quick background on the step in between and then, or whatever the next step is when you're, you know, you're in Chicago, you're, you all are living together and, and then ultimately jumping out and, and start to do your own, own thing. Yeah. So I worked, um, my summer between first and second year at Yale, I worked as an intern uh, for A.T. Kearney in their New York office and um, decided I wanted to be back home closer to Chicago and also felt like I could get ahead a little bit more financially moving back to Chicago. So I, I worked there, got a ton of experience, really great experience. It was a hard job initially. Uh, I tell I recount that a lot to analysts and associates that join our team that are struggling that it was it's a job that I really really love now and it's a job that I think I do fairly well but uh was hard initially but I had a different type of experience there it was my similar to wanting to meet everybody you know a new person every week I wanted to be on as many projects as possible so I think I had 14 projects in my first two years there. So I did a lot of private equity projects that were these fast burners. And my goal was just to learn as many different things about as many different topics as possible. Just saying yes. Just just say yes. Yeah. Uh, I had like zero unutilized time. And, um, you know, I had people in my associate class that mostly just got promoted this year, either in July or this past January, who their first year maybe worked on two or three projects and I had worked on eight and it was like, what? How did you get on eight <laughs> projects? Um, but Just I saying yes to the loop, calendar. right? You get the loop. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And not taking a day of vacation. I, I knew I wouldn't stay at AT Kearney forever and being the fiscally conservative person that I was, I wanted to make sure I got paid out my sick days or vacation days when I left. So I worked there, got incredible experience and really achieved the goal that I had wanted of when I 
you know, was looking introspectively and at Morgan Stanley that I didn't like that I worked with a lot of companies that made stuff. I worked with you know, Caterpillar and Lockheed Martin and Dow Chemical and a couple projects with uh, Department of Defense. And I said, you know, I like this. I also worked in a lot of private equity and I really like that as well. Um, and that sort of set me down the path. But once I made it to manager, when I give my talk track on selling a project, I say once I made manager, I wanted to give myself a promotion to partner. And I started <laughs> DPO. So tell, so, uh, Tell me a little bit more about that, and what so what was the conversation between you know you and Elise, and when was the right time to do that, and what when and how, and you know why was that? Did you make that leap? It was helpful. I was recruiting at a lot of different places, so I was I liked my job. I just wanted to have a change of scenery, so I was recruiting to be the GM of Uber in Chicago and recruiting at. Bain and McKinsey and BCG again. I had an offer from PwC Deal Strategy. So I like solving problems, but uh, my it kind of comes full circle. My an Evans, a fellow Evans scholar who's still a, a great client uh, said, "We're looking for somebody like At Carney who's not so damn expensive." And um, I one of my projects at At Carney, I was working for Campbell Soup and. Um, my current, my, my partner, Pronomo was on that project with me. And, um, we said, if we ever got a chance to work together and deploy this global model, we would. So we were really successful. We could communicate extremely well together. So we were really successful him working 8am to 8pm, his time. And then we would connect, swap out what we worked on, what we needed help with. And then, the next, per- I would work 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then we'd do it all of- over again. Tag team. So that, yeah. Yeah. The, we call it follow the sun model, um, 24 or five. Um, but we work 24 hours a day, five and a half, six days a week. And that's, that's, we said, if we ever get the opportunity to do that, we should. So Elise was pregnant with Ronan, my oldest. She was two months pregnant. And I said, well, tell me the, what the problem is. And, uh, I said, well, here's how you need to think about it. And like 30 minutes later, the CEO and the CFO of his largest portfolio company called me and they said, we got this note from Justin. We would love if you would consider running a project for us. And, um, I, can you come down on a Thursday? So I flew down to Houston on a Thursday and set up a company on a Friday. And it was really wild wild west how i structured the project i was able to <laughs> to just say i'll you could pay me i gave him four options people love options uh so i gave him four options two of them were me running the project and non-coincidentally i said it would take me about seven months because i knew i needed to be done by the time ronan was born <laughs> and then i said two of them would be with me and a team and we could get it done in two and a half months so that within each option, we gave them a uh, time and materials price or like, or a much lower time and materials price, but a gain share on the value that we would drive. And, uh, we drove oh, about four and a half million dollars worth of, of EBITDA for that company. And we got to, to keep a portion of that. And we were off to the races. Um, they hired us a couple more times to do different projects. That's fascinating. 
So you so which so which option did they choose? They chose they chose team option gain share. So if we had laid an egg, nobody like I would have probably like made no money. I would have paid the paid the four team. person team and would have been a really crummy outcome. But we they went with that option and uh, we made a million dollars on the first project. Um, That's great. Off to the races. Off to the races for sure. Long runway. Um, knew I never wanted to work for anybody else ever again after that. But I also at that point needed to figure out like, okay, I have no pipeline. At Carney, Bain, McKinsey—they've been working on these things for fifty years plus, and they are well networked. And so I kind of was thinking about who cared about my success, and I really landed on Evan Scholarship people, hmm. members at my country club. Full circle. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the first first client was an Evan Scholar, and it's, incidentally, like the next client who kept us busy for over a year was also from the Evan Scholar network. Um, So they, they took a bet on us like, and then what wound up happening. So we did three projects with the first client. We did three different projects for the next one. And then it started being less of a bet for our clients to take a gamble on us because there were very reputable private equity firms that had done projects with us. And I got into this habit Whenever a client would ask me to reduce our rates, which we were usually very open to, I would say I'm happy to do that contingent upon adding this paragraph in our SOW. And this paragraph was upon exemplary work, underlined exemplary, as defined by the client, client will introduce DPO and co to three bona fide new private equity clients. And so we wound up in a situation where I had three private equity firms on their company letterhead explain how great, like what the project was and how great our, our work was. And, um, we would, I was then rolling around the country with a folder, a DPO and co folder that had three signed letters from super happy clients explaining why we were great and what value we drove for them. Not a bad way to build a business pretty quickly. Yeah. And, uh, we came to the conclusion, we read a lot of books, listened to a lot of podcasts or, you know, not podcasts for me back then, but audio books about running a business. And I got into focus and I said, we're going to be focused on private equity and just do it better than anybody else. There's these mega funds like Blackstone and TPG and whatnot that will always hire Bain or McKinsey, but there's a lot of private equity firms with $300 million funds or billion dollar funds that it's not in their budget to work with Bain or McKinsey. And so, and our team winds up bringing like the DPO and co team is just as strong as any team at Bain and McKinsey. So we're competing against firms that we feel we can now kick our coverage very quickly. Uh, we got really, really smart people and we're doing it in a smarter way with this global team. Can you describe that a little bit more? What DPO and co has evolved into? Cause I know it's, you know, it's grown certainly and evolved in terms of capability and role and things like that. Can you get paint, paint the broader picture a little bit as well? Yeah. So I think we had six clients that second year of business all private equity firms or were the portfolio companies of those private equity firms. And 
we just finished 22 and we've been growing at a 45% CAGR uh, since 2018. We grew at 154% last year. Wow. So we've been adding team members and we every time on the strategy side, we hire somebody in the US. We also try to hire somebody in Asia. We've gone global staffing to the max. And so we had this team that was doing a mix of pre-closed diligence for private equity firms, kind of helping private equity firms decide whether to make an investment, if so, what risks they'll have, and how do they mitigate those risks, and how do they grow a bit the business if they do an acquisition. And then half of our work is once they've made the acquisition, helping them with procurement or improving processes or operations, um, improving the profitability of companies, and sometimes helping them sell, get ready for, for a sale process. And so what will we've been growing that strategy practice. And then in 2013, we were doing a project, or excuse me, in 2020, we were doing a project where we finished, we finished a project for a Chicago private equity firm on March 13th. And I remember thinking it was a little bit irresponsible <laughs> to be at the consult at the client site on that day because pretty much you were hearing everything about Seattle and New York having being overrun with COVID. And we had all these extremely talented people in Asia in particular that I never would want to let go. And so we had to do a little bit of a pivot and keep those folks busy. We, we stood up a new offering called our business process outsourcing practice, which has really grown a lot. That team is doing, uh, initially you had like literally people who were the valedictorian of their Christian Petra University in, in Indonesia joining our team and they were helping us with strategy projects. And then for a while they were doing accounts receivable and accounts payable and replacing really uh, challenging roles to fill in the US and get good good talent in. So they were, we stood up this whole, that was a definitely a case of life giving us COVID lemons and making some lemonade because now we have uh, like 45 people doing business process outsourcing. Wow. We just expanded that offering. We set up a company in Colombia two weeks ago. And so now the same strategy that we have on the strategy practice is being implemented on the business process outsourcing practice. So they'll be doing uh, 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. handoff meetings every day and giving their clients 24-hour coverage. So you're just scaling you and Pernomo's tag team. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and everybody goes through the same training that Pernomo and I've had for the last six years. But so we've we've done 146 consulting projects in the last six years. And I think with 60 private equity firms now, and not just private equity firms, also like independent sponsors and family offices and everybody who thinks and breathes and lives in EBITDA being private equity focuses, we, we don't think in terms of revenue rarely. We don't think in terms of cost. We, we think in terms of EBITDA. And we, we try to do this calculation of what's the EBITDA value at stake for changing something. And probably as an, it, it's a DPO and coism to say what's the vast, what's the EBITDA value at stake for, for getting that right. 
that's the size of the prize for all of our clients and all of our work. And we want our, we measure ourselves against that. So if we're going to charge a client, we want to make sure that we can drive a meaningful EBITDA value at stake. Otherwise, we're not going to have a highly recurring client if we can't prove a lot of value. Yeah, that's an amazing uh, operation you've built and, and journey. I know one thing I wanted to touch on before we get to my traditional last question is, you know, speaking of saying yes and a lot of international experience, where you are right now, because you're not in Chicago, you're in a spot that's a little bit warmer than Chicago. So we just <laughs> love to hear, you know, why, when, how you landed where, where you are, you know, right now, geographically. So, yeah, so I live in Dorado, Puerto Rico. We've been living here for two years and 20 days. We moved here when Jackson, my third, uh, was a month old. And so we moved here because I, I was a big, I'm a libertarian. I believe in very, very socially liberal and very, very physically conservative. Um, to me, this is Ayn Rand's entrepreneurial utopia. I had read a lot about Puerto Rico and a lot of folks are here. Entrepreneurs are here to get better taxes. We are Act 60 holders, uh, which is uh, an op opportunity for us to pay a lower corporate income tax on DPO income. But I also knew we were going to be getting into investing. So one of the 60 private equity sponsors that we've worked with multiple times now is Platte River Equity. And my partner, JB, uh, left Platte River about two years, or yeah, about two years ago. And uh, we started the Foxhole Group, which I'm trying to summarize as hopefully what Mitt Romney did in 1984, where I have these really smart consultants who want to just drive value and solve problems where they can. And I'm trying to keep them maximum utilized and keep give them the fulfill their intellectual curiosity that they are so passionate about while also, you know, we've made a lot of money for our, our private equity clients. I wanted to be able to go across the table and say in an honest and goodness way that I understand your point of view, Mr. Private Equity Firm or Miss, Miss Private Equity Firm partner, because I'm also an investor. So two years ago, JB and I partnered up we have uh, what's called an independent sponsor, so we're not we don't have a dedicated fund. We use the DPO and Co team to to source deals, and uh, they're lower middle market industrial. We sometimes say dusty, rusty, or dirty fingernail businesses that not too many people, thirty seven year olds, are that pumped about. Where we uh, we don't dive into SaaS and healthcare software businesses like most people my age we love similar to that feeling that i had back at at carney love businesses that make stuff move stuff or service stuff um or fix them uh so we own a printed circuit board assembly business we own an hvac distribution business and we own a sanitary tubes valves and fittings business and hoping to do one or two deals a year and kind of have a muse for which our consultants can just dominate and grow whenever they're not busy with private equity clients. So we've sort of solved our, our utilization problem because our team, most of them invest in our deals. Um, and so they're motivated to drive value at the companies that they're working on. 
Sounds like a very complimentary way to increase utilization and keep the team sharp and do a better job for everyone. Absolutely. I uh, appreciate you taking the time. This has been fascinating and quite a journey that you've had. The way I like to close each of these conversations is in two-part question modeled kind of goofily after the take a penny and leave a penny dish at a convenience store. So on the leave a penny side, what's something you know specific that you'd leave for our audience that's been important to you, either a tip or a trick or a book or an idea or you know something like that that's been important to your journey as a business builder? And then once you're done answering that, I'll ask you the flip side of that, which is which how can we help you? Okay, so on that leave a penny, I think life is too short to work with jerks. You should <laughs> surround yourself with people all the time. We, you hear people say you don't, you, you want to s- surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, but I'll take it a step further. It's smarter than you, just as hardworking and just as entrepreneurial. We spent a lot of time thinking about who we add to our team. Pernomo has been my rock, he was my implementer for. Super long time, this business wouldn't have been close to where it is without him. And he was at my house the night my first two kids were born. So working with somebody that just cares a little bit more about your company's success is going to drive a ton of value for you. Uh, So for a long time, we only hired friends or people that we worked with. uh, And it worked out very, very well. Everybody was rowing in the same direction fundamentally. That's awesome. And on the flip side, how, um, you know, we've got an engaged and growing group of current or aspiring business builders. How, you know, what could our, the Built Out Last community do for you or for DPO or anything that you're working on or that you care about? I think uh, it's the same, same answer almost in reverse, but finding more of the, you know, introducing me to entrepreneurial, like-minded People who want to either be leaders at Foxhole portfolio companies or contribute to the DPO and co team and uh, work across Foxhole and DPO and co private equity clients. The t- you know, talent has been the number one governor to our growth, finding people that we want to spend 50, 60 hours a week with. So if there's highly talented people that might be interested in what we're doing, that's, that's our number one need. Well, I'll send them your way. And thank you for taking the time. This has been an awesome conversation. I've learned, you and I have gotten to know each other, but I always learn something new and this has been fascinating. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks everyone for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources, please visit builttoutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is or want to build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. 